0: For a Living is brought to you by the Illinois Economic Policy Institute and the Project for Middle Class Renewal at the University of Illinois. Hello and welcome to another edition of the For a Living podcast. I am your host, Frank Manzo. I serve as Policy Director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute, and I am writing solo today. I am going to just go ahead, jump right in, and introduce the topic. Millions of workers in different countries and at different times have sought to organize into labor unions. Whether or not a government's laws even allow or facilitate organizing, there has been widespread demand by workers for labor unions as an expression of their freedom of association. In spite of higher personal costs that may be related to to unions, workers have fought for the right to organize, to tilt the balance of power from employers to workers, to provide due process procedures, and to ensure that workers can earn an adequate living to support their families. The key point here is that unions do not form out of thin air. Right? They they actually arise when individuals voluntarily decide to come together to collectively address what I would call market inefficiencies, but can also be called economic or social problems. They are voluntary and democratic actions, and these voluntary and democratic actions by individuals make it clear to me that unions have some place in benefiting the economy. They occur kind of naturally in the free market as a response by workers to address problems. But those costs of unions are always brought up by certain politicians or commentators. Politicians and the voting public must also consider the benefits of unions. They exist in a, in free markets. Why? What benefits do they have on the economy? And so that's what this podcast is about. How unions can improve the American economy. And I'm just going to go through 10 examples of how I think unions positively impact the economy for the better. The first way is that union workers earn higher wages and have higher consumer demand than non-union workers. Now, there are many personal benefits to being a union member, but the most obvious one is that unions raise worker wages and they increase labor's share of the economic pie. So research dating back all the way to the 80s and through to today generally finds that unions raise worker wages by between 10 and 17 percent so if you're in a union your wages are generally somewhere between 10 and 17 percent higher than a comparable worker you know same age same race same uh, level of education today this translates into thousands of dollars in additional income for a full-time worker now as unionization has declined over time labor's share of the economy has declined over time there has been a redistribution of, of income from workers to owners it's very clear in the in the data that income from employee compensation is going down as a as a share of the economic pie and capital income you know in in terms of profits and and capital gains uh, machinery and automation that is increasing as a share of the economic pie so the decline in unionization has actually resulted in lower consumer demand because workers have a smaller share of the pie. But economic research shows that consumer spending accounts for the vast majority of jobs in the American economy. Over 60% of total employment in the economy is a result of workers spending money. Currently, full-time union workers who have higher incomes on average and spend more money on average actually are responsible for creating more jobs on average. This offsets any potential negative effects that unions have on an industry's employment. This needs to be taken into account, and you need to think about this every time someone says, you know, more unions in manufacturing is going to reduce jobs in manufacturing, Okay, that could be true in an area, it could be true in a state, but those workers, if they're earning more money, are spending that money back in the economy and creating other jobs in other industries. This brings me to the second way in which unions benefit the American economy, and it's that unions reduce inefficient levels of income inequality. So unions raise, but they also compress wages the hourly wage premium from being in a union is is high, you know, let's just say it's 10 20, 12% something like that. Being in a union, on average, your wages go up by 10 12%. But for the median worker, the middle class, the the absolute middle class worker in America, the wage effect is even larger. And for the poorest workers, the impact of being in a union is even higher, going all the way up to, you know, over 20% according to some research. And so one researcher by the last name of Schmidt at the um, Center for Economic and Policy Research found that unions benefit lower and middle-wage workers most and help to reduce inequality. The gap between wages or salaries is also 25% lower within companies that are unionized compared to workplaces that are non-union or open shop. So inequality within an organization is lower when that organization is unionized. And then research on a macro level uh, for the whole economy has found that unionization tends to reduce wage inequality in the national economy by a significant margin. And again, the gradual decline in labor union membership has been a significant factor In the rise in income inequality across America and across the world, a a comprehensive study of many nations by the International Labor Organization found that the rise in wage inequality is mainly due to the decline of union density and influence in these countries. The decline of unionization has accounted for up to a third of the entire growth of income inequality in America. A third way that unions benefit the American economy is that union workers receive less government assistance. I don't know why this isn't talked about way more. When especially one side is so focused on cost, 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 the cost of, okay, union workers, or the cost of uh, Medicare or Medicaid, or the cost of, food stamps. Union workers earn higher wages and are more likely to have health insurance. They're more likely to be above the poverty line. They're more likely to have a retirement plan at work. So that means they're less likely to rely on the government for help. Eight in ten full-time union members have a retirement plan at work compared to only about half of full-time non-union workers, or three in ten Part time workers in the economy. Only 3% of full time union workers earn an income that places them below the federal poverty line. This compares to 6% of full time non union workers. A smaller share of union workers rely on food stamps. A smaller share of union workers rely on public housing or rent subsidies. The non union sector is more likely to receive government assistance. In fact, when we actually run the analysis, full-time non-union workers are about twice as likely to rely on government assistance programs as a full-time union member. By decreasing reliance on government assistance programs, labor unions reduce any distortionary effects of government intervention into the market and help to increase efficiency. Despite receiving less government assistance than their non-union counterparts, union members contribute significantly more in state and federal income taxes. So this is the fourth way in which unions help the American economy, and it's that union workers contribute more in taxes. In a recent analysis, I found that the typical union member after credits and deductions pays between six and seven thousand dollars per year in federal income taxes and about two thousand dollars per year in state income taxes. For non-union workers, it's five to six thousand dollars in federal income taxes and about fifteen hundred dollars in state income taxes. These are for full-time workers. So union members are contributing more to the tax base. So union members are contributing more to the tax base, but taking less because they are less reliant on government assistance programs. Number five is that unions actually increase productivity in many industries. There is a very strong positive relationship between unionization and productivity in the construction industry. So across the country, as unionization goes up for construction workers, their productivity their value added, their training increases in that state. So, states with the highest share of construction unionization actually have the highest value added per worker. They have the highest productivity per worker. They have the highest levels of apprenticeship training per worker across the country. Eight and ten construction workers are enrolled in a in a joint labor management apprenticeship program or a union program. 8 and 10 across the country, and in the Midwest, it's even higher. In Illinois, 99% of all construction apprentices are enrolled in a union program. Only 1% are enrolled in what's called an open shop or a non-union program. Same thing in Wisconsin and Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio. Around 9 out of 10 apprentices are enrolled in union programs in construction. Agreements between worker unions and employers are, are the only real effective way of training workers in construction. They're the only ones that take it seriously, invest a, a serious amount of uh, money doing it, and actually help you know blue collar workers achieve a middle class lifestyle. There's been previous economic research which shows that union membership increases worker productivity in other industries. So there was a there was actually an analysis of academic studies, so an an analysis of 53 other academic studies covering, you know, over 50,000 workers, and this, you know, meta research found that American unions raise productivity in manufacturing by 10 percent and in education by 7 percent. So unions help improve productivity, but they also reduce turnover, and this is the sixth reason In fact, in industries that don't have an institutionalized form of private uh, worker training through apprenticeships, the reduction in turnover is actually the most general way in which unions raise productivity across the board, across sectors. Unions promote democratic workplaces. Workers can vote out the union if they don't like it. They can vote for their union president to represent them. They have Organizers or business agents or representatives that help protect workers against workplace conflict and the abuses of managerial authority. The result on net is a workforce with high morale, and workers do not want to quit their jobs. So this results in lower turnover, which fosters a more experienced workforce and cuts down on training costs and the costs of actually hiring new employees. Because unionized employers have less turnover, they are incentivized to invest in employee training and take a high road approach to human resources. Number seven, historically, unions have fought against child labor and fought for public education. Labor movements were integral in the movement to end child labor and to install compulsory education for children under the age of 18. The American Federation of Labor passed a resolution calling on states to ban children under 14 from working in the 1880s. And then, of course, pressure from labor organizations during and after the Great Depression helped to pass the Fair Labor Standards Act which regulated minimum ages of employment for children. The economic research on child labor and public education has found that without this intervention, more children would have continued to work in the labor force. It would have discounted the value of education. Countries that have a problem with child labor and have much more children working have a problem of human capital they have less uh, educate they have lesser educated workers and and lesser skilled workers and so their GDP per capita decreases by working to reduce child labor and to increase funding for public education unions have increased national economic productivity over the long run number eight. Unions fight against all forms of discrimination. Plain and simple. Employers who discriminate against a certain type of workers, let's say there's a racist employer who doesn't want to hire uh, African Americans, those employers who discriminate are generally not profitable because they forego higher profits because they they hire workers based on prejudices rather than on an objective cost-benefit analysis. So it results in basically, employers hire the, the wrong mix of, or or the wrong number of, of workers. By fighting against racial and gender discrimination, labor unions have helped to improve economic efficiency. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., speaking at the 4th Constitutional Convention of the AFL-CIO, articulated the duality of interest between unions and in particular African-American minorities, saying that their needs are identical with labor's needs. Decent wages, fair working conditions, livable housing, old age security, health and welfare measures, conditions in which families can grow, have education for their children, and respect in the community. The shared goals of unions and minorities led union members to play a critical role in the civil rights movement. Often forgotten in the history books is that Dr. King, when he was assassinated, was actually supporting striking sanitation workers in Memphis. But the broader takeaway is that a collective bargaining agreement, a contract, doesn't care if you're white or African American or Latino, Latina, or Asian or Native American, Or gay or straight, or old or young, if you qualify for the job and you get the job, you get paid the rate in the collective bargaining agreement. In construction, if you can operate the machinery needed to build uh, a road or you can uh, build stairs as a carpenter, you get that rate whether or not you're a man, a woman, you're black or white, you're gay or straight, it doesn't matter. That's what you're paid. And that's how unions fight against discrimination. Now economic research has found that fair employment laws which were promoted by labor organizations have helped to increase incomes for African-American men and African-American women by between 5 and 13 percent. And again today labor labor unions remain at the forefront of anti-discrimination legislation. Unions continue to partner with civil rights groups with women's organizations and equal pay supporters and the LGBT community to ensure fair pay, job safety, and freedom from employment discrimination. By helping to eliminate wage gaps and discriminatory hiring practices, unions have helped to increase profits and improve the economy. The ninth way that I believe that unions help to improve the American economy is that Unions collectively bargain towards efficient contracts. Okay, despite the political rhetoric, this is pretty simple. In the collective bargaining process, both workers and employers come to the table wanting something. Now, typically, workers want higher wages, but they may want better working conditions, better health and retirement plans, more vacation time, um, or just other perks provided by the company. Employers may want lower costs. Fewer workplace rules, uh, increased flexibility in hiring and firing employees. But the main item, the main thing that employers want is workers. They want the labor to do the job so that they can produce a product or have a service. And when a contract is agreed upon, right, neither side comes away saying, oh, man, I got everything I wanted because they exchange these demands with the other side to a level that is acceptable to both parties. This helps companies and unions arrive at an agreement in which unionized firms hire what's called the efficient level of employment. It's a give-and-take process. It exhausts all the possible bargaining outcomes. And the employer hires the, quote, right number of workers so that the union does not decide to strike or that the employer does not lock the, the workers out. And so... There's there's a kind of a famous actually there's actually a famous study in economics that showed this theory of efficient contracts. And it comes from looking at stocks and in the stock market and corporations. A $1 increase in the share of the economic pie that goes to workers was found to reduce shareholders wealth by exactly $1. So the union negotiated a higher wage and a dollar more that goes to those workers was essentially just redistributed from the shareholders. It's a one-for-one transfer. And if unions actually caused this economic inefficiency, a $1 increase in their pay would have reduced the shareholders' wealth by much more than a dollar. It would have implied that the company lost total value because the, the shareholders lost money. Instead, when there's this dollar-for-dollar trade-off between workers and firms, the economic pie remains the same and unions do not reduce overall economic output. They just all, essentially, again, there's just another way of looking at how they just altered the division of income to an efficient level between workers and employers so that neither workers strike nor employers lock them out. Finally, unions fight against the power of owners, especially in sports. And so we'll get there when there's only one employer hiring workers in a market such as a coal mine in a remote location or you know what is traditionally referred to as a, a company town that employer is able to drive down wages below what is traditionally the competitive market rate but when workers are organized into a union however they they counter this trend they they counter this pressure by the employer the downward pressure on wages and push earnings back up to the free market level so the the clearest example that i can think of of this uh, improvement in efficiency is in sports labor markets so an extraordinarily talented football player currently has one labor market in which he can enter and that's the national football league he can't go to the the national basketball association and say i'm a really good football player." Let's, let's make sure I earn my, my market rate, right? He can't go to Europe because there's no league over there anymore and there never really was. It's only the National Football League. Same thing was true for players in the National Basketball Association, the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, Major, Major League Soccer, et cetera, et cetera. Labor unions in sports have actually increased efficiency by fighting for free market wages. It sounds kind of backward, right? The, the unions fighting for the free market wages. It's because in the past there was a system, and now I'm really thinking of baseball, in which owners had a reserve clause to lower player costs. They these reserve clauses restricted the players from selling their services to competing teams. They couldn't just leave the team and go to another team. What we now know is free agency. The reserve clause said that the the team owned the player. And so the the player had no alternative employer to help them to help him bid up his services, to figure out what his actual free market rate is, and so the reserve clause drove down player salaries. Again, these is owners acting in their own interests, destroying the free market. Runs contrary to a lot of what you know, what a lot of conservative or libertarian economists or uh, groups would think happens in a naturally in a market. But the owners have their own interests at heart, and they just completely destroyed the market. So players had to accept these restrictions on their freedom of movement and freedom of taking a job where they actually really wanted to work, you know, the team they wanted to play for, or they could find another job in a whole different industry because they couldn't play baseball anywhere else. Disempowered, these players decided to organize into labor unions to fight for free agency. The interesting thing is that today, owners still fight against this open free market system where a worker uh, is free to go out and find the market rate and find someone who's going to pay him what he's worth. There is only a very limited version of free agency in the MLS now, and it was only introduced in 2015. And it's only for players who are 28 years old um, or, or older and have at least eight years of experience. I mean, this is a very limited form of free agency. In the NFL, we have what's called the franchise tag, which is a weakened reserve clause, restricting player movement and lowering salaries for superstar players. Disputes between the NBA and their players' union arise often, and we've seen lockouts over recent years. But the most economically inefficient sports labor market, in my opinion, is the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, which is in college. The tasks of a student-athlete, quote-unquote, and the university's control check off every single box required to be classified as an employee-employer relationship. These people are not going, in general, they're not going to school to, to learn. They're going, especially in basketball, they're going for a year, and then if they're talented enough, they're getting the hell out of there, and they're going to the NBA where they can actually earn their market rate. Education is not a priority for, mo- for most of these athletes. And, and not for the colleges either. The priority for them is making money off of the entertainment value of the athletic events. Now, this is NCAA price fixing at a max, and players are only compensated for tuition and room and board and other school-related expenditures, which is great. But recent estimates suggest that a, the average college basketball player is actually worth about $400,000 per year. And the average college football player is actually worth about $200,000 per year. And even more for big-time sports programs, you know, in the millions per year. In professional sports, unions have helped to increase efficiency by improving parity and raising salaries toward the actual free market competitive rate. But in college, this has not occurred. And the movement to form a collegiate players union, such as the College Athletes Players Association, CAPA, um, which was, there was kind of a movement in, I think, 2015 by Uh, individuals from Northwestern University, that movement has stalled over time, even though it would serve to promote stability in labor relations and actually provide workers, the players, uh, a compensation that they are actually worth. So those are 10 reasons why I think unions help improve the American economy. Once again, it's that unions uh, help workers earn higher wages and increase their own consumer spending. They reduce socially inefficient levels of income inequality. Their members receive less government assistance and contribute more in income taxes. And unions increase productivity in uh, certain sectors, especially construction, manufacturing, and education. Unions reduce employee turnover rates, fight against child labor and for public education, fight against all forms of discrimination, collectively bargain towards efficient contracts and fight against the power of owners and especially in concentrated labor markets like sports I want to conclude by saying that I think labor unions are imperfect but they are also very far from this distortionary awful institutions that shrink the economy and hurt job growth um, that we you know see characterized by some, politicians and think tanks and commentators public private nonprofit organizations that can all increase and decrease economic efficiency in many ways and institutions are not inherently economically good or bad the same thing is true for labor unions while there are potential costs of unions politicians and the voting public need to balance out those concerns by considering the economic benefits of unions as well. In evaluating the pros and cons of labor unions in the modern economy, these benefits must be considered. They must be factored in. Otherwise, we're going to have unintended consequences if the attack on unions continues. If the attack on unions continues to reduce union membership, the redistribution of income from workers to owners and from labor to capital is going to increase Uh, reliance on government assistance is going to increase. Consumer demand is going to be impacted. Tax revenues are going to be impacted. Uh, Education and productivity and child labor, these things are going to arise as issues, and the power of big businesses will only increase. We need to consider the benefits of unionization and how unions positively impact the American economy. Thank you for listening to this episode of For a Living. Once again, I've been Frank. Talk to you again soon. All music on the For a Living podcast comes from the 2015 song Passe Pierre" by the Punch Brothers.